MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have, not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., and today we're on episode five of the series on the book by Wajahat Ali called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. Uh, today, I'll be covering chapters five and six, beginning on page 115 in the hardback edition, and we start with the recommendation to die hard in America, where Waj talks about how he never thought he'd live to see 40 and by his count, he survived four near-death experiences. He starts by talking about he was the kid that knew the school nurse by name and had a permanent doctor's note in his pocket. Uh, he was the sick kid. He had malaria, a heart disorder, pneumonia at one point, got hit by a motorcycle, and inherited OCD. And he was convinced of the Ali family curse. And he tells us that we can decide if the following events are due to a supernatural force, an act of God, or a malevolent hand. Or, quote, simply kismet, fate, tough luck, random occurrences, or as the School of Hard Knocks teaches us, tough shit, unquote. First up, it's called the bad, bad case of Jadu, or some tough shit. Either way, survive it. Kala Jadu, or dark magic, is the concept in Islam of an unseen world that has detrimental impact on reality. There's also the concept of Nazar, or the evil eye. To protect yourself from it, you must avoid the evil of the envier when he envies. Now, Waj says a great example of Nazar, and a Nazar trap, is Instagram, right? Photos of yourself doing awesome things. You put them up, that draws the evil eyes of envy. So a photo of you and a much better looking partner, that's going to get Nazar. A pic of your new house that you just moved out of your apartment to buy, that's going to get Nazar. A happily married couple with a big house and a Mercedes and a big screen TV, Quote, that's going to get hella nazar and describes my childhood, unquote. Now, next up is a section called Hereditary Nazar. And Waj tells the story of his father, who at the age of four fell into a tub of scalding hot water. Uh, this happened because someone had drawn a bath for a woman. This was in India, and it's traditional to get into a warm tub after you give birth. And they had poured scalding water in and were letting it cool. But Waja's dad didn't know that and found himself somehow in it before it had cooled down, and he ended up with third-degree burns over most of his body. And then in 2000, his dad was in Pakistan visiting family, and he burned his hand in scalding water in a sink after passing out for some reason while brushing his teeth. Several skin grafts later, uh, Waj says his hand resembles something like mashed pepperoni pizza. And then in 1971... Uh, his dad survived Hodgkin's lymphoma. Was it supernatural or luck? 
unknown, right? But Waj's dad survived, while others in Waj's family didn't. Because in 1978, his dad's older brother, Sultan, died in a tragic drowning accident in Hawaii. Apparently, he went out for a float on an inner tube in a lagoon and then just washed up on shore 10 minutes later. And, and there was no foul play, no alcohol, no drugs, no poison. Waj says a healthy young man went into the water to relax, and within 10 minutes, he was gone. Waj was born two years later, and his dad's business became successful, and they lived in the big triangle house in Fremont with the Mercedes and the big screen TV, and everything was amazing, bliss, for six years. But then came what Waj refers to as the year of sorrow, and that's 1986, when his dad's younger brother passed away, leaving a wife and three children behind. And then a few months later, his grandfather went in for a checkup, and the doctors for some reason recommended a bypass surgery, which ended up being unnecessary. And within two weeks, he died from a blood clot, which was a complication of the unnecessary invasive procedure. And Waj once asked his grandma if she thought it was fate or some sort of foul play. There's something foul, right? Not foul play, but something foul at play. Uh, and she said she was content with what Allah had written and was hopeful, despite having buried her husband and two sons. She then remembered a friend back in Karachi who said to her that she was lucky to have four sons because she didn't even have one. And with that, her voice cracked and she said, she nazared my boys. Next up on page 121, if Pakistan can't kill me, nothing can. Waj says Pakistan tried to kill him three times by his count, yet he keeps going back. When he was four, he made the mistake of trying to cross a busy Karachi suburb street in front of his daddy's home when he was hit by a motorcycle and split his forehead open. His dad's sister serendipitously saw this happen, uh, or luckily saw this happen, scooped him up, took him to the local hospital, and Waj says, let's just say the local hospital was lacking in resources. The doctor said if I had landed one inch to my right or one inch to my left, I would have died on the spot. If I only had such impeccable aim in sports. <laughs> Recently, Waj's dad pointed out to him that he was the same age when he fell in the tub of scalding water, four years old, and that Waj's daughter endured stage four liver cancer at the age of three. Quote, however, we're all still here and alive. Then when Waj was nine, he returned to Karachi and contracted life-threatening pneumonia. He was literally dying on a cot at his grandma's house when by chance a young doc doctor visiting from America was called to check on him. And the doctor said, he's got pneumonia. They rushed him to the local hospital, again, lacking in resources. There were rats. Uh, instead of a window, there was a net. Waj would wake up with a dozen or so fresh mosquito bites every day. The staff kept messing up his meds. One injected saline under his skin instead of into a vein, which caused it to, you know, blow up like a balloon. And he was in excruciating pain. He said, quote, one positive that uh, was that I lost a lot of weight. As Monty Python advises us, always look on the bright side of life. So maybe it was the hand of Allah that saved him, or maybe it was the Ali family curse that got him, or someone's Nazar, or maybe just bad shit happens. And that brings us to Pray the OCD Away on page 124. Now, ever since he was young, Waja's mind would get stuck on things. He couldn't shake off certain images or thoughts. And those endless thoughts would morph into, what if I left the stove on? Or what if I lose control and do something violent? And Waj was having endless tormenting streams of vile and deviant sexual thoughts. And when he tried to stop them, they would get worse. He eventually told his mom and dad, 
which he says was ballsy because many of his Muslim and South Asian friends can't imagine having sex chats with their parents. But Waj's parents were outliers in that way. They proactively broached the subject of sex. Uh, They knew that Waj had put pictures of supermodels up on his wall that he got from his mom's Vogue subscription. And when she saw them uh, and saw him putting them up, she said that this was disgusting. And she's like, wait until your father comes home. And Waj assumed that his father would make him take the pictures down. But Waj's dad told his mom, it's okay, let him keep it. And she was like, what? But he, but he let him keep them. Times like those made, made it feel like Waj could tell them about his repeated invasive thoughts. Uh, and they were understanding. Uh, they sent him to three psychiatrists, each of whom diagnosed him with OCD. And Waj says OCD afflicts 2% of the population. It's an electrical misfiring in the brain, causing it to overreact to disturbing thoughts. If you're in the 98%, you simply ignore the thought and move on with your life. But if you have OCD, you get stuck and become filled with anxiety and dread, and you seek escape through compulsions that provide relief, immediately relief, immediate relief, such as counting or repeating mantras. Uh, Dr. Stephen Philipson, an OCD expert, told Waj that everyone has these naturally occurring edgy ideas and thoughts, but those with OCD will become overwhelmed with, quote, a tsunami of emotional distress. And he compared it to, quote, a best friend who desperately wants to protect us, so it warns us about threats, even those that are illegitimate and don't exist. And Waj says here, I obviously need new best friends. And me personally, AG, I wish I had known that. 15 years ago. Not that Waj needs new best friends, but that that's what your brain is doing. It's trying to protect you. Waj says the first step is to forgive ourselves for having an anxiety disorder. And the second step is to stop fighting the thoughts. And the best treatment is exposure and response prevention. He says the only way out of it is through it. You must confront your demons head on. That is so true. And then Waj snaps back into the mission of the book, saying he hasn't forgotten about you. This book is meant to help you become an American. And that he's telling us all this, of what he's told us, because in order to become American, you have to survive. But the good news is that if you're a minority, you are, on average, more mentally resilient to stress than white people. And he has research to back this up. It shows that the white majority in America are not as prepared to cope with adversities as communities of color who have consistently lived under economic and social pressure. He says, hooray, we get one win, one small advantage. And if you come from a religious community, you have another advantage, prayers. And it's his father's generation that believes in the myth of praying the sickness away and that seeking help for mental health is for Goras. It's that generation that probably suffers the most. That may be why he was so sympathetic. His dad was so sympathetic to Waj when he told him about his invasive thoughts because OCD has a genetic component and his father got it too. He's now in his 70s. He goes to a therapist and he talks about it openly when asked. But Waj thinks about the elders that don't talk about their mental health and end up suffering in silence. He says, I always wonder how many could live happier, more fulfilling lives if they simply unburden themselves from the unbearable expectation of perfection and allow themselves to just breathe and be human. Disorders, wants, and all. I wish I could go back in time and give myself this advice at age 21 after my parents were both arrested. Unquote. And that brings us to chapter six, Uh, a helpful recommendation on how to become an American is to avoid jail. And and I I want you to remember here the idea of Waj wishing he could tell his younger self, his 20-year-old self, after going through what we're about to discuss, to unburden himself from the unbearable expectation of perfection. 
So I'm going to tell you the ins and outs of this chapter, but I really encourage you to read it for yourself. Uh, and Waj was in San Francisco. He was eating tandoori chicken when he got the call from Yasmin that his parents had been arrested and he needed to come home. Earlier that morning, a dozen armed FBI agents raided their home in Fremont, dragged his parents out of bed and handcuffed them in their pajamas and took them to jail in Oakland. This was April of 2002. They'd been swept up in Operation Cyberstorm, which was an undercover op with 27 arrests for the alleged sale and distribution of counterfeit Microsoft software and accessories. His parents were hit with 30 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, wire fraud, and money laundering in a scheme to defraud Microsoft of millions of dollars. People assumed the Ali's were sitting on like $100 million of ill-gotten gains, which Waj wished were true because he says he really could have used that money. The papers called his parents scammers. They were criminal masterminds. And back in the 90s, we rewind a little bit. This arrest was in 2002. But back in the 90s, they had immense financial success because their company had won bids to provide computers and accessories to the U.S. government and colleges. And his dad was the CEO of this company. His mom was the president. But in 95, two of their employees submitted bids that contained errors over a mouse device on a $200 million contract with the Department of Health and Human Services. And in an extreme measure, the government debarred both employees and his father, but not his mother. His mother was not debarred for whatever reason. So the family business was finished. But his parents, for the most part, successfully shielded Waj from the fallout at the time. He would hear little snippets of conversations here and there. There, there was a stress in the air, um, but he mostly shielded, shielded him from, from the fallout. And, and since his mom was not disparred, she started a new, a new business. Same, same kind of thing, but started a new business and started winning government contracts again. But in 98, 1998, another employee made a mistake submitting a bid because that bid required the company to have four or five years of experience. And this was a new company that had only been around for two years. And because of that, the government came around again, accusing them of fraud. And they were convicted of making false statements to the government and were given probation. So by 1998, they had to give up the Triangle House, you know, with the, you know, the one with the Mercedes, the big screen TV. They had to give up the Triangle House. They were renting in Milpitas, but there was a fire there and the landlord was weird. And so they ended up having to move back to Fremont, all while Waj's dad was trying to purchase land in Pleasanton. And he got a bank loan for that, which eventually led him to being accused of bank fraud. Waj says, don't worry, don't worry, it all gets crazier. And they accused him of bank fraud because he took out a loan in another name, which he did. And when Waj asked him about it, they told him that they had gone to India on business after the whole thing went down in, with the two employees and the Microsoft thing. And a friend recommended they seek the advice of a numerologist. And that numerologist told Waj's parents that their names were cursed and they had to change them. They were finished with that, those names. So they did. They legally changed their names. And, and new social security numbers came with those new names. And it might have looked shady, but it was not illegal. In 2002, the Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of Waja's dad for the bank fraud thing. But soon after that, they were arrested. Now, initially, they had no idea why. And in hindsight, Waj says his parents should have settled the case and taken the deal they were offered. But it meant admitting guilt. And they felt that they hadn't broken the law. And his dad told him to retain a lawyer, Chris Cannon, who required $5,000 to get started, a retainer. And Waj is like, where would I get $5,000? And who was going to take care of the house and the bills and the office, the salaries of the employees? How was I going to study for my upcoming finals and write my thesis? What about law school in the fall? 
He says, quote, all of these things crashed through my mind. But instead of freaking out, I was overtaken with an odd sense of calm. I realized I'd just have to get to work because I had two elderly grandmothers at home. And if I lost my shit, then everyone would lose their shit. And then we'd all be dead, bloated corpses floating in a river of shit. I couldn't afford to have a meltdown. Too many people depended on me. I also thought this would clear itself up within a short time. I heard laughter from the heavens. He then says, I still marvel at the absurdity of how my parents, two Pakistani-American immigrants who had a beef with Microsoft, spent nearly five years in jail, but the Wall Street architects of the 2008 financial crisis that ruined so many Americans mostly all got wealthier and failed up in life. To quote George Carlin, it's a big club and you ain't in it. But in any case, his parents were now criminals branded for life. And he says the old Wajahat Ali died that day, too. He was no longer the good child of good Pakistani family. He was the son of criminal masterminds. He became both us and them. The checklist of success that we talked about earlier blew up. Quote, and just like that, with the snap of Thanos wearing his infinity gauntlet, the money was gone. The house was gone. The assets were gone. The reputation was gone. The community was gone. Our friends were gone. My mother said it best. Everything we touched turned to dust. Now, during that time, Wash had to figure out a way to maintain the payroll, get the website back up because the Fed seized the server. He was unable to use the house or the land to get money because they seized that too. He was also finishing his senior thesis and co-teaching two classes. Come finals were coming up. It was fight or die, he says. His parents were stuck in jail and he couldn't make the seven-figure bail. They had to survive inside prison while he had to deal with the collateral damage outside prison. And it was during those times that he had a dream that his grandpa had taken him to get a haircut. Now, his family is big on dreams. And in Islam, there's a saying that true dreams are 146 prophethood. And there's an etiquette for sharing and interpreting dreams. Initially, you keep them private and share them with someone who is spiritually elevated that can help you decipher them. And he shared his dream with Makbul Nana in London. That's his mother's father's brother, his great uncle, who was paralyzed from the waist down. He told Waj it was a good dream because his elder was there, a loved one, his grandfather, was there with him. And the haircut was cleansing. He says, you will emerge from this. He then said he wanted to give him a gift. And he had him recite chapter 21, verse 69 from the Quran. We said, O fire, be thou cool and a means of safety for Abraham. Now, that's from the story of when Abraham confronted his father about false idols and smashed them all. And as punishment, the community elders threw Abraham in a fire, which was suddenly cooled for him. And he taped that verse, Waj did, on top of his computer, along with chapter 47, verse 31, that says, And we shall try you until we test those among you who strive their utmost and preserve in patience, and we shall try your reported metal. So... <clears throat> Back to his parents. The government was trying to get his parents to make a deal, to plead. And they were hesitant. That is until they threatened to drag Waj in and charge him. Because their home was in Waj's name. And they alleged they were using the home to launder money. And they were ready to sign. But their lawyer, Cannon, said, be patient, hang on. And the government tried their best, but eventually realized they had nothing on Waj. And they dropped it but he says it was a baptism through pain and hard knocks. And then and then came the betrayal, which is the next section, the betrayal. This outlines the most painful wounds that are inflicted by emotional daggers. And, and after they lost everything, material, the house and the car and the reputation and the business, 
Waj says he found comfort in the fact he didn't really miss any of that. What was worse, though, was how many lifelong friends and community members abandoned them and how some were actually gleeful at their misery. Rumors were spread that the FBI had cars parked outside their house and were taking down plate numbers of any visitors. And every time Waj was able to convince a friend or family member to offer property as bond to help get his folks out of jail, they'd balk the day before the hearing. He says hope can be dangerous because it means exposing yourself to the possibility of success, to allow yourself to imagine a happy ending, only to be confronted by cold, brutal disappointment. Waj sold many of their things at weekly garage sales. His mother had to sell jewelry, which she to this day regrets for not being able to give that jewelry to Waj's wife, Sarah. And she's apologized to Sarah on numerous occasions, even though Sarah never expected the gifts and never felt remorse for not getting them. Waj even asked a mosque board member and a family friend to pray for his parents. But he said no, it would be too political. And he never anticipated how much the community's behavior would wound him, would hurt him. Quote, if you needed, uh, if you indeed knew we were such terrible people, as people claimed they did, why were you at my house a week earlier eating my food? Why did you accept our presence? Why did you ask me for rides? Why did you come to our social events? I mean, if you knew we were criminal masterminds and that I was the gilded son filling my belly at the trough, then what does that say about you, who nonetheless indulged your appetites at your convenience? Now, Waj says he never asked those questions out loud, but they kept spinning in his head, and he he was taken aback at how quickly so many could turn so cruel. Local friends disavowed them, and Waj ended up isolating himself and committed to working nonstop. Then he hit rock bottom one day when he withdrew his last $20, leaving just three pennies in his bank account. And he began laughing when he looked at the receipt. And that's when he drove to his parents' office, told the employees to go home, locked up, and he made peace with the fact that he'd have to shut down everything. He was tapped out. His credit was maxed out. He was exhausted. And then he went home, locked up, went home, ate, watched a movie on TV, and went to sleep. And he says, to this day, I recall that sleep. It was the deepest, most comforting and nurturing rest I've ever known as an adult. He just let go. Now, when I read this, about this sleep, about letting go, I immediately thought, of a video for a song called Rabbit in Your Headlights by Uncle, which is a Tom York project. I'd recommend maybe pausing here and watching that video if you're able. Now, eventually, a few family uh, family friends came through and put up properties for Bond, and Waj was able to get his parents out of jail. Looking back, Waj doesn't believe his parents ever intended for him to get caught up in their chaos. But in the past 20 years, they've never been able to properly say, I'm sorry for putting you through two decades of hell. And when Waj had low moments, as a matter of fact, his parents would say, hey, we were in prison. We didn't get depressed. Why are you depressed? He says, quote, they never seemed to understand that they at least had a choice. They were able to write their own story. My story was written for me. My narrative was hijacked. And Waj's wife says, though, that uh, had they acknowledged how much pain their actions caused their son, they'd have broken down. So instead, they shielded themselves through detachment and tough love. After about a year, after the arrest, when Waj was 22, his body started breaking down. He couldn't hold liquid, and he went to see a urologist who says he had this kidney problem. It felt like stabbing pain, and and the urologist said he only sees that in men above 50 or those who have undergone a very traumatic event. 
and Wash couldn't sleep. And even though his parents had been released, they spent the next decade appealing their case. And if they lost, they'd be sent back to jail. So there was this sword of Damocles hanging over Waj for most of his 20s. He lost his spark, he says. He lost his sense of humor. And in 2003, he relented and went to see a psychiatrist and revealed enough for the doctor to conclude that Waj trusted no one and that he'd have to work on that. And here's where I want you to remember the idea of Waj wishing he could tell his younger self to unburden himself from the unbearable expectation of perfection. The doctor said it will take a lot of work if you're willing to commit to it. But instead, Waj decided to white knuckle it the rest of the way. He says, quote, my parents kept trying to encourage me to start my life. I'd laugh and say, what life? And Ami said, at the very least, finish the play. In hindsight, Waj says, that advice helped save my life. And that is the end of Chapter 6. I will be back next week with Chapters 7 and 8. There's also an episode of Muller She Wrote out today with Pete Strzok and me. And I'll be back with Dana tomorrow morning for the Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. I'm A.G. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.